to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Elizabeth Stevens and it is my honor to be here with Dr. Tyrone David of the University of Toronto. A legend in cardiac surgery, he has received numerous awards over the years and was AETS president in 2005. However, he may be most known for his development of the David valve sparing aortic root reimplantation procedure for which he has shown superb long-term results. Today he is here to talk to us about creativity in surgery. Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. Apparently, creativity comes two ways. Either uh, you're born creative because you're a genius and you see things in our culture different than most people do, so you are able to change our culture. Or you are uh, like I am. Uh, In other words, I'm not a genius. I'm an average intelligence, but uh, very curious and uh, always asking questions. And from a previous experience, you build on blocks that lead to uh, new developments. Uh, in other words, uh, before you can change a uh, part, of our, part of our culture, you better know the culture very, very well. If you're a musician, you cannot be a composer unless you know all about the composers, all about music. Uh, I think creativity in surgery or in medicine is no different. I was very fortunate that my mentors guided me towards uh, uh, a training where in that, those days, 37 years ago now, uh, was new, was innovative, uh, and the Europeans were ahead of us on that. So Dr. Bigelow sent me to Europe to observe surgeons like uh, Alain Carpentier, Donald Ross, uh, Hans Borst, who uh, Although in different places, they all had uh, something new to uh, in cardiac surgery that was quite unique. The most impressive was Carpentier because it transformed the way uh, mitral valve operation was done. And uh, Sir Magia and Donald Ross with the Ross procedure and homographs. And, Magia, and Sir Magia Kub was doing aortic valve repairs. Uh, this was far back in 1979. That's a long time ago. So I, I spent a year traveling in Europe watching this uh, best-known surge for the time. And when I came back home, I, uh, I was lucky. I fell in a place where after six months in practice, I was literally operating every day. When I say every day, Saturday and Sunday as well. Uh, I. Uh, there was plenty of patients, not enough resources. The hospital decided to uh, give me the opportunity to develop something bigger. Uh, and I, I could operate as much as I like. I only stopped when I had to sleep, to be quite honest. Otherwise, I could work day and night. And at the same time, I, I, uh, I had worked before at Cleveland Clinic with a vascular surgeon back in 1975 who had developed the very basic uh, database. So I knew Pascal language, I knew basic language. I developed my own database back in 1979 and started entering. Every operation I finished, 
how to enter the uh, the data that I could collect and hire a nurse to help me to uh, follow the patients. And uh, from one became two, and in five years I had three nurses doing nothing but contacting my patients and reporting to me how they are doing. So I think by examining your own outcomes, you become more critical of what you do and try to find ways to do better. Back in 1981, 82, hemodynamics of uh, bioprosthetic valves were a very pertinent issue because of uh, the housing, the stent was pretty bulky. And uh, in compared to homograph, it was like night and day. And I had echo already in my hands. So to replace an aortic valve with a classic Hancock or the Carpentier Pursing valve back in 1980, you look at the echo compared to homograph, it was like night and day. And the ventricle was different as well. Although it took two, three times longer to put a homograph in a subcoronary position, the uh, hemodynamic outcome was much better. That forced me to uh, do more homographs, but homographs have a problem. The problem is you don't have enough donors. So my first innovation was, why don't I take a pig out of the stent valve and put the pig valve in? A stentless person valve. There is no limit how I many I can do. And uh, with that, we improved dramatically the hemodynamics of a porcine valve from stent to stentless. Our first development was developing stentless porcine valve. It was not a very good idea, because as I continued to follow those patients, they failed prematurely, they failed sooner than stented, indicating that what was doing in the operating room or the biological fate of a stentless valve in a native aortic root may not be as good. Seven years into stentless valve, I had discovered that one of the reasons why they fail is that as you age, our sinotubular junction dilates. Well, if a stentless porcine valve is anchored in the sinotubular junction, and the sinotubular junction dilates, your and my valve can adapt itself as elastic. Porcine leaflet is not, it's unelastic, central aortic insufficiency. Did a bit more research and I discovered that there is something called the functional anatomy of the aortic valve. And it was the same reason why homographs are failing, and I had already started doing the ROS procedure. The same point for the ROS. Mm -hmm. So I started bending the central blood junction to prevent dilatation. With that, we improved the, uh, the durability, but you increase mechanical stresses because it's no longer elastic. So it's a, it's a stepwise, out of necessity, we develop the stentless valve. Stentless valve led us to understand that sinotubular junction is important to maintain valve competence. And uh, in many patients, with a sending or the aneurysm develop aortic insufficiency only because the central blood junction dilates. So I had the occasional patient that uh, look at the cusps, they are perfect. Why to replace the aortic valve? I simply replace the ascending aorta above the uh, aortic valve and reduce the sinotubular junction by suturing a graft. Mm -hmm. And that was my very first aortic valve sparing operation.
At the same time I was doing all this, uh, European surgeons had developed other techniques of repair, cast prolapse, putting uh, magia cubes, using a lot of patch in, cups, in cusps, so was Alain Carpentier. So I started blending both techniques. A patient came in one day, same problem, but the non-coronary sinus was very dilated. But the valve was perfect. So you replace the SNA aorta above the uh, coronary arteries and create a tongue of tissue to replace the non-coronary sinus. That's a remodeling the aortic root. The next patient, all three dilated, which is all three remodeling. The problem remodeling the aortic root, we discovered pretty fast, doesn't address the annulus. So our next operation was an aortic anuloplasty, which we did both for a Ross procedure. In other words, patient bicuspid aortic valve frequently had large aortic annulus. So before the Ross, which is an anuloplasty, putting a bend outside the outflow tract, then putting the uh, autograft in to prevent dilatation. And the same thing we start doing for uh, valve sparing. So a bend and a supracoronary graft, supraanular graft, so-called remodeling with an anuloplasty. So one day, so why to do two parts? Why don't put the whole thing in a tube? And that's how the so-called David operation came to be about four or five years later after I was doing remodeling. So it is, as I said, a stepwise uh, learning curve. You, you try one away, that technique you develop, open the doors to new things, you analyze the results, fit, see the limitation, try to modify and keep creating. The crucial thing is you have to have high volume of patients and you have to follow your patients. Otherwise, whatever you invent today, unless you know the effect a year, five or 10 later is irrelevant. And the David operation happened to be a very lucky one. We, we, uh, and to be quite honest, I don't know why the patient does so well. Uh, take the whole valve, put inside that rigid structure. We have now people going at 27 years and the valve is still working. And can you t talk a little bit more about what you think were the most important elements that trainees, as they're going through, can foster to help them be those types of uh, innovators in the future? Like what, during I, I, our training, I, I what think we can first you have to be exposed to a mm -hmm. high quality surgery, and you have to read, you have to know everything that is being written, and, and by reading, you probe into somebody else's brain, but they're particularly the discussion, their papers, they. They express their views, and uh, and that uh, allow it to have the foundation. Next, you have to operate. I, I I think it's a tragedy to be a heart surgeon to operate two days a week, one day a week, and uh, have to be in the operating room as much as possible. And that's where I'm. Uh, I might be old-fashioned, but this 40-hour working week is for genius only. For the ordinary man, he has to work 80 or 90 hours a week to. Uh, to be able to, to move on. And when you look at the field currently moving forward, are there particular areas that you really see as ripe for innovation or, or ways as you look oh, oh forward? Gosh, yes. in, in, um, every part of cardiac surgery is playing for innovation. Uh, there's a revolution now on percutaneous technology, if right. you like this kind of uh, research. But uh, 
myocardial remodeling and uh, why remodeling occurs and how to prevent or how to reverse remodeling. Uh, Any area that you look at, if you uh, read and know the subject in depth, you're going to find that there's a lot of uh, gap in knowledge that you can fill with your contribution, your innovation. And can you speak on kind of the current status of valve sparing and uh, when and where it's used most effectively? I think for aortic root aneurysms, particularly in young people, that's the ideal operation. I don't know if the benefit in a seven-year-old is the same as in a 40-year-old. A 30 and 40-year-old patient, likely the cusps have an adaptive mechanism that can be inside of a rigid structure in the last 20, 30 years. I doubt it. The cusp of 65 or a seven-year-old patient having the same operation, we have the same adaptation mechanism. By adaptation, I mean you are removing the normal function of the aortic root, which is uh, supposed to keep moving through the entire cardiac cycle. The, the subcamera short rank is supposed to open when the heart ejects blood supposed to contract when the heart is uh, relaxed. All this is abolished with reimplantation of the aortic valve. And yet, the operation works. Likely works because the valve can adapt itself to that rigid, strange configuration uh, of function. But you know, form follows function. Eventually, it's going to fail. Right. And right. that's where you can come to innovative way to a and I think what you need is a graft that uh, is not so reactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the foreign body reaction is not so intense as Dacron is. Dacron forms a, uh, a shell that 10 years later is like, almost like a rock, doesn't move at all. It's, uh, when first implant is slightly compliant, slightly, not very much. But by five or 10 years, it's as rigid structures as can be. We, we, uh, I don't know if we can do that. We need engineers to help us. Uh, we as biologists can contribute by showing what, what happened once we plant in animals and then in humans. But right. it's due to, we are overdue to have a new type of graft to replace arteries and veins. Right. And some of our audience might not be as familiar with some of your other innovations in cardiac surgery. You've had a number. Are you able to just kind of briefly talk about some of your other uh, all, contributions? They're not very, none of them as, uh, as uh, you know, vague and different as it involves sparing. Uh, I, I, uh, I learned about Gore-Tex through uh, Bob Freighter. I was looking for a material to replace corda tangina. Bob Freighter was using it in sheep. I, I saw and I, he showed me some uh, histological outcomes. So I think Gore-Tex to repair mitral valve prolapse, uh, it changed the mitral valve repair dramatically and expand the, uh, the indications. I, I, I think almost literally every mitral valve, valve can be repaired. Still in mitral valve, those uh, horseshoe calcification of the mitral annulus. I, I, it's a difficult operation, unfortunately. It's not easy to teach and uh, and I don't know why so many surgeons are reluctant to do. Uh, detach the leaflets from the calcium bar, take the calcium bar out, and put a, 
a bovine pericardium or, or autologous pericardial patch to reunite the ventricle to the atrium, reattach the leaflet and repair the valve like uh, normally. Uh, we developed an operation very early in my career for endocarditis where the, uh, the abscess had extended into the uh, interval of his body, mitral valve and posterior mitral animals. We developed numerous techniques to patch the whole base, the heart. And we continue following these patients 30 years later. They still work. They come back because the bowel processes fail. Mm -hmm. uh, in myocardial infarction, acute myocardial infarction, cardiogenic shock, I think the infarct exclusion made a major difference in rupture septum and acute ventricular aneurysms. That the patients are dying, cardiogenic shock, going OR, open the, uh, the infarct, put a patch inside, close, you get them off cardiogenic shock in the operating room. And this was all developed before the days of uh, ECMO, before the days of uh, mechanical assistive devices. We had only balloon pump, and that was enough to save most of them. So now we should be able to save literally every patient. So there's a number of them, uh, not as dramatic as the uh, aortic valve sparing, and uh, in domain of fewer surgeons like mitroenus calcification, mitroenus abscess, uh, reconstruction the base, the heart with uh, when there's infection or multiple previous operation, leave no space to uh, to sew a new prosthetic valve. I have one operation. I'm writing a book, by the way. Oh, and, uh, great! We'll look forward and, to it. And uh, it's going to be a lot of illustration, and, and not only operative techniques, but what happened to patients up to 35 years later, because I have this data in my patients. Uh, I have uh, operations where the only thing left from the patient is the muscle in the coronary arteries. We put a conduit between the pulmonary veins and the ventricle, uh, a dacron conduit with a sundered valve inside, another conduit between the outflow and the aorta with a, like a bento, but the bento that starts on a conduit used to connect the pulmonary veins to the, uh, and this was done by the, for this small population of patients. I have only 15, 20 patients like this with congenital mitral stenosis, where the mitral valve is diminutive. You cannot put any valve in. Yeah. Surgery put a 21 or 23 valve by the time the kid is 15 or 20. So the only way to enlarge the whole thing is by putting these conduits on both sides of the heart the inflow and the outflow. And it's amazing how well it works if you preserve the heart well. So there are a long list of uh, innovative procedures, but most of them are very complex and not easily reproducible. Uh, they are reproducible by surgeon operate every day, but for the occasional surgeons, it's very difficult to do. So it's valve sparing. Reimplantation the aortic valve is a complicated operation as well. But that's why I didn't start with that. That was a consequence of a previous experience with Stentalas valve, Ross procedure, homograft, and then adjust Santubla junction, replace one sinus, remodeling, and moving on to a more complex. Uh... Great. Well, on behalf of all the residents and the community, thank you for all your contributions to the field, and thank you for doing this podcast with us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Thank you.